Section 12 of Tales of Wonder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ed Humpel. Tales of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. A Story of Land and Sea. Part 1. It is written in the first book of Wonder how Captain Shard of the bad ship Desperate Lark, having looted the seacoast city Bambasharna, retired from active life, and resigning piracy to younger men, with the good will of the North and South Atlantic, settled down with a captured queen on his floating island. Sometimes he sank a ship for the sake of old times, but he no longer hovered along the trade routes, and timid merchants watched for other men. It was not age that caused him to leave his romantic profession, nor unworthiness of its traditions, nor gunshot wound, nor drink, but grim necessity and force majeure. Five navies were after him. How he gave them the slip one day in the Mediterranean, how he fought with the Arabs, how a ship's broadside was heard in latitude 23 north, longitude 4 east for the first time and the last, with other things unknown to admiralties, I shall proceed to tell. He had had his fling, had Shard, captain of pirates, and all his merry men wore pearls in their earrings. And now the English fleet was after him under full sail along the coast of Spain with a good north wind behind them. They were not gaining much on Shard's rakish craft, the bad ship Desperate Lark, yet they were closer than was to his liking and they interfered with business. For a day and a night they had chased him. When off Cape St. Vincent at about 6 a.m., Shard took that step that decided his retirement from active life. He turned for the Mediterranean. Had he held on southwards down the African coast, it is doubtful whether in the face of the interference of England, Russia, France, Denmark, and Spain, he could have made piracy pay. But in turning for the Mediterranean, he took what we may call the penultimate step of his life, which meant for him settling down. There were three great courses of action, invented by Shard in his youth, upon which he pondered by day and brooded by night, consolations in all his dangers, secret even from his men, three means of escape, as he hoped, from any peril that might meet him on the sea. One of these was the floating island that the Book of Wonder tells of. Another was so fantastic that we may doubt if even the brilliant audacity of Shard could ever have found it practicable. At least he never tried it so far as it is known in that tavern by the sea in which I glean my news. And the third he determined on carrying out as he turned that morning for the Mediterranean. True, he might yet have practiced piracy in spite of that step he took a little later when the seas grew quiet. But that penultimate step was like that small house in the country that the businessman has his eye on. Like some snug investment put away for old age, there are certain final courses in men's lives which, after taking, they never go back to business. He turned then for the Mediterranean, with the English fleet behind him, and his men wondered. What madness was this? muttered Bill the boatswain in old Frank's only ear, 
with the French fleet waiting in the Gulf of Leon, and the Spaniards all the way between Sardinia and Tunis. For they knew the Spaniards' ways. And they made a deputation and waited upon Captain Shard, all of them sober and wearing their costly clothes, and they said that the Mediterranean was a trap, and all he said was that the north wind should hold. And the crew said they were done. So they entered the Mediterranean, and the English fleet came up and closed the straits. And Shard went tacking along the Moroccan coast with a dozen frigates behind him. And the north wind grew in strength, and not until evening did he speak to his crew, and then he gathered them all together except the man at the helm, and politely asked them to come down to the hold. And there he showed them six immense steel axles, and a dozen low iron wheels of enormous width, which none had seen before. And he told his crew how all unknown to the world his keel had been specially fitted for these same axles and wheels, and how he meant soon to sail to the wide Atlantic again, though not by way of the straits. And when they heard the name of the Atlantic, all his merry men cheered, for they looked on the Atlantic as a wide, safe sea. And night came down, and Captain Shard sent for his diver. With the sea getting up, it was hard work for the diver, but by midnight things were done to Shard's satisfaction and the diver said that of all the jobs he had done, but finding no apt comparison, and being in need of a drink, silence fell on him, and soon sleep, and his comrades carried him away to his hammock. All the next day the chase went on, with the English well in sight, for Shard had lost time overnight with his wheels and axles, and the danger of meeting the Spaniards increased every hour, and evening came when every minute seemed dangerous, yet they still went tacking on towards the east, where they knew the Spaniards must be. And at last they sighted their topsails right ahead, and still Shard went on. It was a close thing, but night was coming on, and the Union Jack which he hoisted helped Shard with the Spaniards for the last few anxious minutes, though it seemed to anger the English. But as Shard said, there's no pleasing everyone. And then the twilight shivered into darkness. Hard to starboard, said Captain Shard. The north wind which had risen all day was now blowing a gale. I do not know what part of the coast Shard steered for, but Shard knew, for the coasts of the world were to him what Margate is to some of us. At a place where the desert rolling up from mystery and from death, yea, from the heart of Africa, emerges upon the sea, no less grand than her, no less terrible, even there they sighted the land quite close, almost in darkness. Shard ordered every man to the hinder part of the ship, and all the ballast too, and soon the desperate lark, her prow a little high out of the water, doing her eighteen knots before the wind, struck a sandy beach and shuddered. She heeled over a little, then righted herself, and slowly headed into the interior of Africa. The men would have given three cheers, but after the first shard silenced them, and, steering the ship himself, he made them a short speech while the broad wheels pounded slowly over the African sand, doing barely five knots in a gale. The perils of the sea, he said, had been greatly exaggerated. Ships had been sailing the sea for hundreds of years, and at sea you knew what to do, but on land this was different. 
They were on land now, and they were not to forget it. At sea you might make as much noise as you pleased, and no harm was done. But on land anything might happen. One of the perils of the land that he instanced was that of hanging. For every hundred men that they hung on land, he said, not more than twenty would be hung at sea. The men were to sleep at their guns. They would not go far that night, for the risk of being wrecked at night was another danger peculiar to the land. While at sea you might sail from set of sun till dawn, yet it was essential to get out of the sight of the sea, for if anyone knew that they were there, they'd have cavalry after them. And he had sent back Smurdrak, a young lieutenant of pirates, to cover their tracks where they came up from the sea. And the merry men vigorously nodded their heads, though they did not dare to cheer, and presently Smurdrak came running up, and they threw him a rope by the stern. And when they had done fifteen knots they anchored, and Captain Shard gathered his men about him, and, standing by the land-wheel in the bows, under the large and clear Algerian stars, he explained his system of steering. There was not much to be said for it. He had with considerable ingenuity detached and pivoted the portion of the keel that held the leading axle, and could move it by chains which were controlled from the land-wheel, thus the front pair of wheels could be deflected at will, but only very slightly and they afterwards found that in a hundred yards they could only turn their ship four yards from her course. But let not captains of comfortable battleships, or owners even of yachts, criticize too harshly a man who was not of their time, and who knew not modern contrivances. It should be remembered also that Shard was no longer at sea. His steering may have been clumsy, but he did what he could. When the use and limitations of his land-wheel had been made clear to his men, Shard bade them all turn in, except those on watch. Long before dawn he woke them, and by the very first gleam of light they got their ship under way, so that when those two fleets that had made so sure of Shard closed in like a great crescent on the Algerian coast, there was no sign to see of the desperate lark, either on sea or land, and the flags of the admiral's ship broke out into a hearty English oath. The gale blew for three days, and, Shard using more sail by daylight, they scudded over the sands at a little less than ten knots, though on the report of rough water ahead, as the lookout man called rocks, low hills or uneven surface, before he adapted himself to his new surroundings, the rate was much decreased. Those were long summer days, and Shard, who was anxious while the wind held good to outpace the rumor of his own appearance, sailed for nineteen hours a day, lying to at ten in the evening, and hoisting sail again at three a.m., when it first began to be light. In those three days he did five hundred miles. Then the wind dropped to a breeze, though it still blew from the north, and for a week they did no more than two knots an hour. The merry men began to murmur then, Luck had distinctly favored Shard at first, for it sent him at ten knots through the only populous districts, well ahead of crowds except those who chose to run, and the cavalry were away on a local raid. As for the runners, they soon dropped off, when Shard pointed his cannon, though he did not dare to fire, up there near the coast. For much as he jeered at the intelligence of the English and Spanish admirals, in not suspecting his maneuver, the only one, as he said, that was possible in the circumstances. Yet he knew that cannon had an obvious sound, which would give his secret away to the weakest mind. 
Certainly luck had befriended him, and when it did so no longer, he made out of the occasion all that could be made. For instance, when the wind held good, he had never missed opportunities to revictual. If he passed by a village, its pigs and poultry were his, and whenever he passed by water, he filled his tanks to the brim. And now that he could do only two knots, he sailed all night with a man and a lantern before him. Thus, in that week, he did close on four hundred miles, while another man would have anchored at night, and have missed five or six hours out of the twenty-four. Yet his men murmured. Did he think the wind would last for ever, they said? And Shard only smoked. It was clear that he was thinking, and thinking hard. But what is he thinking about? said Bill to Bad Jack. And Bad Jack answered, He may think as hard as he likes, but thinking won't get us out of the Sahara if this wind were to drop. And towards the end of that week, Shard went to his chart room and laid a new course for his ship a little to the east and towards cultivation. And one day towards evening they sighted a village, and twilight came, and the wind dropped altogether. Then the murmurs of the merry men grew to oaths and nearly to mutiny. Where were they now, they asked, and were they being treated like poor honest men? Shard quieted them by asking what they wished to do themselves, and when no one had any better plan than going to the villagers and saying that they had been blown out of their course by a storm, Shard unfolded his scheme to them. Long ago he had heard how they drove carts with oxen in Africa. Oxen were very numerous in these parts, wherever there was any cultivation, and for this reason, when the wind had begun to drop, he had laid his course for the village. That night, the moment it was dark, they were to drive off fifty yoke of oxen. By midnight, they must all be yoked to the boughs, and then away they would go at a good round gallop. So fine a plan as this astonished the men, and they all apologized for their want of faith in Shard, shaking hands with him every one, and spitting on their hands before they did so in token of good will. The raid that night succeeded admirably, but ingenious as Shard was on land, and a past master at sea, yet it must be admitted that lack of experience in this class of seamanship led him to make a mistake, a slight one, it is true, and one that a little practice would have prevented altogether. The oxen could not gallop. Shard swore at them, threatened them with his pistol, said they should have no food, and all to no avail. That night, and as long as they pulled the bad ship Desperate Lark, they did one knot an hour, and no more. Shard's failures, like everything that came his way, were used as stones in the edifice of his future success. He went at once to his chart-room, and worked out all his calculations anew. The matter of the oxen's pace made pursuit impossible to avoid. Shard therefore countermanded his order to his lieutenant to cover the tracks in the sand, and the desperate lark plodded on into the Sahara on her new course trusting to her guns. The village was not a large one, and the little crowd that was sighted astern next morning disappeared after the first shot from the cannon in the stern. At first Shard made the oxen wear rough iron bits, another of his mistakes, and strong bits too. For if they run away, he had said, we might as well be driving before a gale, and there's no saying where we'd find ourselves. But after a day or two he found that the bits were no good, and, like the practical man he was, 
immediately corrected his mistake. And now the crew sang merry songs all day, bringing out mandolins and clarionets and cheering Captain Shard. All were jolly except the captain himself, whose face was moody and perplexed. He alone expected to hear more of those villagers, and the oxen were drinking up the water every day. He alone feared that there was no more to be had, and a very unpleasant fear that is when your ship is becalmed in a desert. For over a week they went on like this, doing ten knots a day, and the music and the singing got on the captain's nerves, but he dared not tell his men what the trouble was. Then one day the oxen drank up the last of the water, and Lieutenant Smurdrak came and reported the fact. "'Give them rum,' said Shard, and he cursed the oxen. "'What is good enough for me,' he said, "'should be good enough for them,' and he swore that they should have rum." "'Aye, aye, sir,' said the young lieutenant of pirates. Shard should not be judged by the orders he gave that day. For nearly a fortnight he had watched the doom that was coming slowly towards him. Discipline cut him off from anyone that might have shared his fear and discussed it. And all the while he had had to navigate his ship, which even at sea is an arduous responsibility. These things had fretted the calm of that clear judgment that had once baffled five navies. Therefore he cursed the oxen and ordered them rum, and Smurdrak had said, Aye, aye, sir, and gone below. Toward sunset Shard was standing on the poop, thinking of death. It would not come to him by thirst. Mutiny first, he thought. The oxen were refusing rum for the last time, and the men were beginning to eye Captain Shard in a very ominous way, not muttering, but each man looking at him, with a sidelong look of the eye, as though there were only one thought among them all that had no need of words. A score of geese, like a long letter V, were crossing the evening sky. They slanted their necks, and all went twisting downwards somewhere about the horizon. Captain Shard rushed to his chart-room, and presently the men came in at the door with old Frank in front looking awkward and twisting his cap in his hand. "'What is it?' said Shard, as though nothing were wrong. Then old Frank said what he had come to say. "'We want to know what you be going to do.' And the men nodded grimly. "'Get water for the oxen,' said Captain Shard. "'As the swine won't have rum, and they'll have to work for it, the lazy beasts. Up, anchor!' And at the word water, a look came into their faces like when some wanderer suddenly thinks of home. "'Water!' they said. Why not? said Captain Shard, and none of them ever knew that but for those geese that slanted their necks and suddenly twisted downwards, they would have found no water that night nor ever after, and the Sahara would have taken them as she has taken so many, and shall take so many more. All that night they followed their new course. At dawn they found an oasis, and the oxen drank. And here, on this green acre or so, with its palm-trees and its well, beleaguered by thousands of miles of desert, and holding out through the ages, here they decided to stay. For those who have been without water for a while, in one of Africa's deserts, come to have for that simple fluid such a regard as you, O reader, might not easily credit. And here each man chose a site where he would build his hut and settle down, 
and Mary, perhaps, and even forget the sea, when Captain Shard, having filled his tanks and barrels, peremptorily ordered them to weigh anchor. There was much dissatisfaction, even some grumbling. But when a man has twice saved his fellows from death by the sheer freshness of his mind, they come to have a respect for his judgment that is not shaken by trifles. It must be remembered that in the affair of the dropping of the wind, and again when they ran out of water, these men were at their wits' end. So was Shard on the last occasion, but that they did not know. All this Shard knew, and he chose this occasion to strengthen the reputation that he had in the minds of the men of that bad ship by explaining to them his motives, which usually he kept secret. The oasis, he said, must be a port of call for all travellers within hundreds of miles. How many men did you see gathered together in any part of the world where there was a drop of whiskey to be had? And water here was rarer than whiskey in decent countries, and such was the peculiarity of the Arabs, even more precious. Another thing he pointed out to them. The Arabs were a singularly inquisitive people, and if they came upon a ship in the desert, they would probably talk about it. And the world, having a wickedly malicious tongue, would never construe in its proper light their difference with the English and Spanish fleets, but would merely side with the strong against the weak. And the men sighed, and sang the capstan's song, and hoisted the anchor, and yoked the oxen up, and away they went doing their steady knot, which nothing could increase. It may be thought strange that with all sail furled and dead calm, and while the oxen rested they should have cast anchor at all. But custom is not easily overcome, and long survives its use. Rather inquire how many such useless customs we ourselves preserve. The flaps, for instance, to pull up the tops of hunting boots, though the tops no longer pull up, and bows on our evening shoes that neither tie nor untie. They said they felt safer that way, and there was an end of it. Shard lay a course of south by west, and they did ten knots that day. The next day they did seven or eight, and Sharve hove too. Here he intended to stop. They had huge supplies of fodder on board for the oxen for his men had a pig or so, plenty of poultry, several sacks of biscuits, and ninety-eight oxen, for two were already eaten, and they were only twenty miles from water. Here he said they would stay till folks forgot their past. Someone would invent something, or some new thing would turn up to take folks' minds off them and the ships he had sunk. He forgot that there are men who are well paid to remember. Halfway between him and the oasis, he established a little depot where he buried his water barrels. As soon as a barrel was empty, he sent a half a dozen men to roll it by turns to the depot. This they would do at night, keeping hid by day, and the next night they would push on to the oasis, fill the barrel, and roll it back. Thus only ten miles away, he soon had a store of water, unknown to the thirstiest native of Africa, from which he could safely replenish his tanks at will. He allowed his men to sing, and even within reason to light fires. Those were jolly nights while the rum held out. Sometimes they saw gazelles watching them curiously. Sometimes a lion went by over the sand. The sound of his roar added to their sense of the security of their ship. All around them level, immense, lay the Sahara. 
This is better than an English prison, said Captain Shard. And still the dead calm lasted. Not even the sand whispered at night to little winds. And when the rum gave out, and it looked like trouble, Shard reminded them what little use it had been to them when it was all they had and the oxen wouldn't look at it. And the days wore on with singing, and even dancing at times, and at nights round a cautious fire in a hollow of sand with only one man on watch they told tales of the sea. It was all a relief, after arduous watches and sleeping by the guns, a rest to strained nerves and eyes, and all agreed, for all that they missed the rum, that the best place for a ship like theirs was the land. This was in latitude 23 north, longitude 4 east, where, as I have said, a ship's broadside was heard for the first time and the last. It happened this way. They had been there several weeks, and had eaten perhaps ten or a dozen oxen, and all that while there had been no breath of wind, and they had seen no one. When one morning, about two bells, when the crew were at breakfast, the lookout man reported cavalry on the port side. Shard, who had already surrounded his ship with sharpened stakes, ordered all his men on board. The young trumpeter, who prided himself on having picked up the ways of the land, sounded, Prepare to receive cavalry. Shard sent a few men below with pikes to the lower portholes, two more aloft with muskets, the rest to the guns. He changed the grape, or canister, with which the guns were loaded, in case of surprise, for shot, cleared the decks, drew in ladders, and before the cavalry came within range everything was ready for them. The oxen were always yoked, in order that Shard could maneuver his ship at a moment's notice. End of The Story of Land and Sea Part 1